Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, if you turn to Mark chapter 15, if you don't have one, you can just uh, listen along. If you don't have a Bible at home, there's some Bibles over on the welcome table. Feel free to grab one on your way out. I'd love for you to have one. Like Pastor Phil said, we have a lot of exciting things coming up. New community groups starting, a new Bible study called uh, Growth Groups. If you're interested in uh, either the growth group or the community group, sign up at the welcome table um, and uh, we'll get you more information about that. So this morning I'd like to look with you for just a few minutes at Mark chapter 15, starting at verse 33 to 39. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. So I went to the bank a couple of weeks ago to open up a couple accounts. And it was a Saturday. That was the only day that it really worked for Stephanie and I to go open these accounts. And so I called the day before to set up an appointment because I figured it was going to be busy and we had a a lot of things that we were doing on that day. So I set up an appointment. We had it for like 11 o'clock or whatever. And uh, we get up, we have breakfast, and then we go to the bank. And I'm thinking, okay, let's just open these accounts and get out of here as soon as possible and we can go on our way and get everything done that we need to get done today. But the person that we were meeting with had different ideas. He wanted to build a relationship with us. And so he started asking us all these questions. So what do you do? What brings you here? Where are you banking? Who are you banking with now? How's your financial health? How is your savings? How much do you have in your savings? Do you have other bank accounts? And we went through this whole thing. You know, and I I was polite and just kind of, you know, went through it with him. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I just want to know how to open up a couple accounts. But he was looking for a relationship. And from that relationship, being able to cater the services uh, that I needed. And I think that we sometimes approach our relationship with God like I approached the visit to the bank. We want to just know what to do. We want to have instructions. And so we seek after God or we open up the Bible because we want to know how to be better parents. Or we want to know how to be a better spouse. Or we, we open up the Bible to learn how to have a better life. Now, the Bible teaches us a lot about those topics, but that's not the primary goal of the Bible. It's not just that we would know some facts, but that we would know someone, that we'd know a person. And God wants to have a relationship with us. And He wants us to know Him personally. Now, at the church, we've been trucking through the book of Mark, uh, pretty slowly, actually, going through it piece by piece and looking at who Jesus is. And throughout the book of Mark, we've learned a lot about Jesus. We've seen His power as we've seen Him cast out demons, feed 5,000 people. We've seen him walk on water. We've seen him calm a storm. 
We've seen his wisdom as he confounded the wisdom of the scribes and the Pharisees. We've seen his authority as he cast out the money changers. We saw his grace as he endured suffering. We saw his glory as he was transfigured before Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. We saw his love as he was kind to a rich young ruler. And so we've learned a lot about Jesus. Yet it's here at, in this passage at the cross that we really see the heart of Jesus. Where we truly learn what Jesus is all about. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in his book Strength to Love said this, The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. And here in this passage that we're looking at today, in Jesus' darkest hours, we see the true measure of Jesus. We see his heart. We see his love. The cross is the key to understanding who Jesus is. Oswald Chambers once said, All of heaven is interested in the cross of Christ. Hell afraid of it, while men are the only ones to ignore its meaning. So today I would like to look with you for just a few minutes at this passage, and specifically at the final hours of Jesus' life. And as we look at the final hours of Jesus' life, we can learn and see the heart of Jesus. And I would submit to you that the final hours of Jesus' life are encapsulated in three words. The first word is judgment. first word is judgment. And in the ancient world, there were a number of different miracle stories about events that happened when famous people died. There was reports of stars appearing in the middle of the day. There was reports of statues weeping because a famous or noble person died. It was said that when Julius Caesar died, that there was a comet that shone for seven consecutive days. And kind of the idea behind this, we don't know that these things happened or not, but the idea behind this was when a famous or a noble person died, the gods would kind of eulogize them. They would show them this person was a special person. This person was worthy of honor. And so there was these stories of these things happening. Yet in this passage that we're looking at with Jesus, the complete opposite happens. It says in the text that there was darkness from the sixth to the ninth hour. That's from about noon to about three. And darkness in the Scripture is something that's almost always a bad thing. In the New Testament, it represents the spiritual forces of evil and Satan. In the Old Testament, when God's people, Israel, were in Egypt in slavery, God sent a plague of darkness upon them. In Genesis chapter 1, when God was creating the heavens and the earth, it says in the text that the heavens and the earth were without form and void, and darkness was hovering over the water. Darkness represents spiritual evil and the absence of God, or the presence of chaos. So I think that the reason for the darkness in this passage is because it's a representation that God the Father has left Jesus to the darkness. Once again, there's a return to chaos, a return to evil, just as there was at the beginning of the world. And Jesus says as, as much when he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which in Aramaic means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God has turned his back in judgment upon Jesus. It's quite different from the eulogies or supposed eulogies of the gods. It's like Julius Caesar, when there was a comet that shone seven consecutive days, it would have been like fireworks going off in our day. But for Jesus, it's only darkness. 
a curse. Representing the judgment of God. Why did God turn His back on Jesus? He turned His back on Jesus because Jesus became sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. He took our greed, our selfishness, our pride, our lust upon Himself. And God cannot look upon that sin. And so He chose to condemn Jesus and to seemingly allow darkness to win a victory. Remember also that Jesus is being crucified on a cross. And in the Jewish mind, a person who was crucified on the cross was a person who was cursed by God. Now, if someone commits a crime, usually you would think of kind of a proportionate crime to, or punishment to fit the crime. So if somebody killed another person, the kind of fitting punishment for that would be they would be killed. It's a proportional kind of response. But what do you do if someone does something like they kill a hundred people? Kill a thousand people? I mean, what kind of punishment can you give a person like that? There's seemingly no punishment that fits the crime. And that's where crucifixion or being hung on a tree came along. Deuteronomy chapter 21, it says, Cursed is a man who's hung on a tree. And these people who were hung on a tree were the people who did things that were so bad, so heinous, that a punishment wasn't available. And in, in other words, when someone was hung on a tree, it was like saying, God needs to deal with this person. God needs to curse this person because we don't have a punishment that fits the crime. And that's what's happening with Jesus. God's judgment is falling upon him. And so we see the judgment of God falling upon Jesus, but we also see the judgment of man falling upon him. We see the people around him continue to cast judgment upon him. The people nearby say, behold, he's calling Elijah. And then someone brings him wine and says, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down to take him. Now, some people have suggested that they were being kind in offering Jesus the sour wine. But given everything that we know about them and the, in the text, how all the people around them continually were ridiculing Jesus, it makes more sense that he, they were making fun of him. The reason that Elijah is mentioned is because Elijah was a person in the Old Testament who never died. He was taken to heaven. And so the Jewish people believed that sometimes Elijah would come and rescue the saints who were in trouble and save them. And when Jesus says, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, they probably thought he was saying, a lie, a lie, which is the word for Elijah. So they think that he's calling out on Elijah, and so they bring him the wine, and they, they want to just keep him, long, keep him around longer so they can continue to ridicule him. And so we see the full judgment of God upon Jesus and the full judgment upon man of Jesus, upon Jesus. So that's the first word that describes Jesus' final hours, judgment. The judgment of God and the judgment of man. The second word is the word atonement. That's a word that we don't use very often in our day and age. If we do, we might say that so-and-so has to atone for their sins. And basically, atonement involves punishment for something that was for wrongdoing so that a relationship can be restored or continue. There's an episode of the show, The Office, where Dwight tries to stab his boss, Michael, in the back. And he goes to their, high, their higher-ups and tries to take Michael's job, but Michael finds out about it. And as a result, Michael tells Dwight that he has to do his laundry for a year, rather than firing him. So in, in that way, he, does, he completes atonement. The relationship can continue. He's not fired. 
but the punishment is paid. And in a similar way, in the Old Testament, there were systems and there were procedures in place for atonement to occur. So that the Israelites, who were sinful, just like all of us, could dwell in the presence of God. And specifically, there was a tabernacle, and later the temple. And in the tabernacle or temple, there was a place called the Holy Place. And then within the Holy Place, there was a place called the Holy of Holies, or the Most Holy Place. And the... Holy place, the most holy place or the holy of holies was separated from the rest of the temple by a large curtain. Nobody could go into the holy of holies except for the priest, and the priest could only go in one time a year. And when the priest did go in, there were a number of different procedures that he had to perform so that he wouldn't die being in the presence of God. So he had to uh, wash his body. He had to put on special clothing. He had to make a sacrifice for himself first and also for the sins of the nation and bring part of that blood into the Holy of Holies. And in that way, it was a symbol of, of atonement being made. That God could dwell in the midst of, the, of His people, yet even though they continually were inclined to wrong Him. And so this is a symbol that sin is being paid for. The relationship can continue. Atonement can be made. And God can dwell with His people. So it's interesting that at Jesus' death, it says that as He breathed His last the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain was torn from top to bottom. And this was probably the curtain that separated the holy place from the most, from the most holy place or the holy of holies. And the reason that this happened because, was because the ultimate atonement had been made. The atonement that had been prefigured by the sacrifice of bulls and goats in the Old Testament was now completed by Christ. No longer was there a separation between God and man. Now God could dwell with mankind. Now mankind could enter into the presence of God. And so in His death, Jesus makes atonement for our sins. He makes a way for us to be in the presence of God, for the relationship to continue with God, even though we've continually wronged Him. Even though we've all fallen short. So that's the second word that describes Jesus' final hours, atonement. Then the final word that describes Jesus' final hours is the word power. The text says that when the centurion who was stood facing Jesus saw the way that he died, he said, surely this man is the Son of God. This is remarkable to me. Because this centurion, probably just a few minutes before, was one of the people who was crucifying Jesus. He was probably one of the people who was ridiculing him, calling him King of the Jews and just. And yet now, he's completely transformed and he says, surely this man is the Son of God. What caused such a change? The centurion had probably seen a number of people die, a number of people crucified. And he had seen the whole gamut of human responses to crucifixion. He'd probably seen people who, on the cross, hurled down insults at anyone who passed by. He'd probably seen people who cried out that they were innocent, that someone else was guilty. He probably saw people on the cross begging for mercy. He probably saw people on the, the cross cursing God and cursing the day that they were born. But Jesus' response was different. It was like any, unlike any other person that had ever been crucified before. This man, Jesus, was abused. He was derided. And yet he chooses not to retaliate. Instead, he cries out to the Father, saying, Father, forgive them, them. They know not what they're doing. 
centurion realizes that Jesus is different. And he correctly acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God. You know, another interesting thing about that, about his confession here, this is the only time in the book of Mark that we see somebody confessing that Jesus is the Son of God. The only time up to this point that someone confesses that Jesus is the Son of God in Mark is right here. And it's not when Jesus is feeding the 5,000. It's not when He's casting out demons. It's not when He's walking on water. It's not when He's healing the sick. It happens as He's dying. See, the cross of Christ has power because in the cross we most clearly see who Jesus is. In the cross, we see that Jesus was not simply a good teacher or a miracle worker, but the Son of God who poured Himself out for the sins of the world. In the cross, we see the love of God for us, and that changes everything. In the cross, we see that Jesus loved us so much that He felt we were worth dying for. And that love changes everything. When Shannon... Atheridge was 16 years old. She made a decision that was going to impact the rest of her life. She was driving to school. She was 18 years old, driving down a country road, and she ran over a woman named Marjorie Jarsfer who was riding a bicycle on that road. Marjorie died as a result, and Atheridge, who was completely at fault, according to the authorities, had been consumed by intense guilt. And she thought about killing herself a number of times, but she didn't. And the reason she didn't was because of the response of one person in the situation. It was the response of Jarsfer's husband, Gary. Gary chose to forgive this, this uh, Shannon and asked the attorney to drop all charges against her, even though she was most likely guilty. He simply asked that Etheridge continue on in the godly footsteps that his wife had taken. He said, you can't let this ruin your life. He said, God wants to strengthen you through this. In fact, I'm passing on Marjorie's legacy to you. Gary's act of love and forgiveness completely transformed Shannon's life. And in the process, she began to understand the love and the forgiveness that God offered her. Today, Etheridge is the best-selling author of the books Every Girl's Battle and Every Woman's Battle. And her more recent book, Completely His, Loving Jesus Without Limits, helps women overcome guilt-ridden, wounded lives. It was all because of love. It was all because of forgiveness. And when we experience true love and we experience true forgiveness, it changes us. And we see the greatest display of love and forgiveness on the cross. And the cross has power to take some of the most hardened sinner and make them into a saint who loves God. And I don't know what your background is. I don't know why you chose to come here today, but this I can tell you. God loves you. Jesus declared His love for you on the cross. And He died on the cross to, to pay for your sins so that you might spend forever with Him. So the relationship could be restored. In many relationships, one of the biggest steps in a relationship is when one partner tells the other partner, I love you. And I remember when I was dating Stephanie, kind of the, the nervousness, you know, the nervousness that I had about that because you don't know how the other person is going to respond. And when you're doing that, you're kind of putting your intentions out there and putting your heart on the table and you don't know what they're going to do with that. I'd submit that that's kind of what Jesus is doing here. He's putting his heart on the table. 
through the cross, He's saying, I love you this much. But are we going to respond to that? Are we going to say, I love you in return? The way that we respond to His love is by turning from the direction that we're going and turning to follow after Him. Saying, I do love you, I believe in you, I trust in you, and I want to follow you. That's how we respond to God's love. So if you're here today, you've never responded to God's love, and you don't have a relationship with God, don't leave this place without making sure that's settled. I'd love to talk to you. Pastor Phil would love to talk to you. Patrick, any, anybody up here, or maybe a, a friend who brought you, would love, love to share that with you. Don't leave today without knowing the God who gave His life for you. Some of us here today are believers. Maybe we've been believers for a long time. We've heard the story before. But if that's us, may we never get beyond the cross. May we never forget what Christ has done for us. May we never forget that the cross is what our ministry is all about. The cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. It's not about improving our life or getting more people to come together to have a good time. It's about the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Because we see most clearly in the cross the heart of God. Let us also remember that the cross is the anchor that grounds us in reality. When we're struggling, when we're going through difficulties, the cross reminds us once, for, once and for all that God loves us, that God is for us. Charles Kingsley once said this, Whatever may be the mysteries of life and death, there's one mystery which the cross of Christ reveals to us, and that is the infinite and absolute goodness of God. Let all the rest remain a mystery so long as the mystery of the cross of Christ gives us faith for all the rest. The cross is the key to understanding who Jesus is. And we see at the cross a God who came to the earth and a man who stretched out his arms open wide and said once and for all, I love you this much. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, even though we don't deserve it, you came to the earth to die on the cross for our sins so that we could have a relationship with you. We thank you that, Jesus, you withstood the judgment of God for us, that you made atonement for us. And now because of that, your cross has power. That even in your weakness and the darkest moment of your life, you bring hope and peace to those who trust in you. God, I pray for anybody here who doesn't know you. God, I pray that today would be the day that they turn from their sins and put their faith and trust in you. Because we know that in you is the fullness of life. We know that only joy we can have is found in you. God, for those of us who are believers today, Lord, I pray that we would never get beyond the cross. We would never move beyond your gospel. That as we face difficulty and trial that we'd be anchored to your love. That we could look to the cross and remember that you love us enough to die for us. That in your eyes, we're worth dying for. God, may that be the fuel and the strength for our ministry and for our lives. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.